podcastjuice.net. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Michael Dean with Prince Podcast, podcastjuice.net. We are live in Seattle, Washington. I guess I'm always live in Seattle because I live here, but I am doing a face-to-face with Mr. Greg Boyer. Sir, how are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. How about yourself? I'm doing good. I'm blessed. I can't complain. All right. So some of you, more than enough of you, should know who Greg is, but let me give you a little background on him. And this is something that I want to make sure that is stressed. Me, I'm all about context and history. And Greg has been around the music business, particularly black music, for quite some time. So for me, somebody just said, this man played on such songs as uh, not just Knee Deep. That's all you need to say. (laughs) (laughs) But for some of y'all, I don't know if I don't want you to listen to my show if, if this is you, but you might not know what that song is. You need to stop right now, do your Googles, go on YouTube, whatever it is, pull that song up. You'll know it when you hear it. So that would put some context to show you that Mr. Boyer has been around and has played with some of the most remarkable and legendary uh, people, not just in music, but of course black music and our heritage and what we stand for. So I am honored, sir, to be here with you because I understand the lineage of what you have been well, a part I'm of. Honored also, you know, it could be one of those things where it's just like you know, Greg Boyer is just that guy with the horn in his hand. But you thought enough of me to have me on a podcast. I'm honored. So I appreciate that, man. Yeah. Uh, so let's get into it. Um, before we get into some Prince conversation, of course, this is the Prince podcast. But I'm actually more interested to know how you got into music. Like, I understand that you joined uh, Parliament and Funkadelic and all that at a very yeah. young age. But how did you go from being a young boy, having parents and, and having a, going to school and whatnot, to go into P-Funk? That's like... It needs to be explained a little bit at least. Okay, well, let me get from the beginning, from the beginning, from the beginning. Okay. Uh, I've always been fascinated with music, you know, even when I was spinning ashtrays around pretending they were 45s and singing my favorite songs, you know. uh, I've always had it, you know, this love for it. And, you know, back when I was coming up, you could just see live music everywhere. You know, Johnny Carson had a band on every night. You know, Ricky Ricardo had the band and New Year's Eve and just countless examples of people playing instruments on television. There was just no way to, to escape it. So I was drawn early. That plus my parents had an extensive record collection and that pulled me in. So by the time I was 10 years old, I was like, I want to play something. I started on a saxophone, started on alto sax. And then that evolved to various instruments, you know, mostly self-taught from that point on. And I was in college, and I just said to myself, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to actually play. I feel like I have something to contribute. So totally unrelated, I, I quit school after three semesters in December 1977. Yeah, let me stop yeah. just for a okay. second, because I know... I'm I'm, I'm a little older than I may look, but I know, like, if I was to tell my parents I'm quitting school to go do this, you know, for a lot of us, you either get to go to school or you had to work. Yeah. 
So, like, how was that? Was there any pushback from your family that you wanted to leave school to go do some music? If there was any concern or even pushback at all, it wasn't noticeable. Plus, you know, I was down there not being a good student anyway, so my parents are like, well, I'm glad he's not wasting my money anymore, you know, DJing, playing in bands off campus, and just, you know, being free from the house, if you know what I mean. Um, but I, I dropped out in 77 and met some people and one person is linked to this person and that person. And two months later, like I said, totally unrelated, I was auditioning for a spot with a horn section at P-Funk because they were having a shake-up at the time. And in March 9th, 1978, I officially became a member of Parliament Funkadelic at the age of 19. So, <laughs> that's a headbuster. So your skill level at that point had to be on point because, again, it's not like today, and I don't I don't want to disparage musicians of today, but yeah. you really had to know how to play, I'd imagine. Like, how did you get to this? I mean, was it just like you were practicing a lot? I mean, was there other bands that you were a part of growing up? Like, how did you get to be a your musicianship? Well, where George Clinton could say. Well, to be honest, I had only been playing trombone as a member of some band or whatever for like about two or three years at the time you know I was primarily a classical tuba player and I played bass in church I doubled on bassoon I played trombone and jazz band I played saxophone in uh, tenor sax in another funk band off campus and I was just everywhere I didn't have any clear direction and sometimes it's not always about how good you are, but who you know. And that was probably more of a situation where it was who I knew and not how good I was. I mean, I could play, but, you know, I wasn't, you know, any musical giant at 19 years old, not by a stretch. But I had was blessed with having a good ear and ability to write arrangements. So... That was one of the selling points. So myself and Benny Cowan and Greg Thomas all went in as P-Funk horns. And we remain the horn section for George Clinton, P-Funk, Parliament Funkadelic, whatever you want to call it, P-Funk All-Stars, for the three of us for the next 19 years. Yeah. When did, uh, so when did Maceo and was it Fred Wesley? Yeah. When did they come into the picture or were they already there when you guys came they were not part of the horn section with P-Funk at the time but they were on the road with Bootsy because Bootsy who at one point was opening it up for for uh, P-Funk had gotten so big then that he went on his own tour and as, as, it, went, as it played out Fred, Maceo, Cush and Rick all went with him aka the Horny Horns and that's what left P-Funk with an interim horn section and they had some, you know, squabbles with management and stuff and that's why the the door opened up for us to come in. Okay. What were some of the, uh, I mentioned Knee Deep, but of course I know you played on a lot of other stuff, but what was it like, you know, in the studio? What was that, that process? Because it seemed like there's a lot of people that you see on these records yeah, uh, that played. How, how many? Can you describe sort of the process of how you guys worked? And they recorded a lot, and depending on who was around, depending on you know that determined who was on the record. George recorded a lot of stuff, you know, much like 
but not maybe on as grand a scale as the legendary vault in Minneapolis. But George was recording all the time. And if you happen to be in the area, he say, hey, put something on this. But he was a great architect as to what he wanted that stuff to be. He made sure he had musicians around that could convey his vision. So, you know, in that respect, that's what the recording process was like. It was nothing regimented, you know, nothing, you know, predetermined about it. It was just a tape is spin and put something on it. And, you know, sometimes somebody would lay down an idea and say, I like that. You know, somebody else would come along and do something, or as George would say, you know, pee on this track. And then, you know, somebody else come along and pee on it. <laughs> and and that's how a lot of that music became what it was. It was a multi-layer cake. But it was a, a sonic version of that. Yeah. What was, uh, if you can, you know, give us an answer to this, like what was the tour life? You know, we hear stories of ghost tours and, and stuff that is going on. But I would imagine you're a relatively young man being a part of that scene and what was going on what was it uh, and how, how should I answer this how should I ask this uh, what was I guess the work ethic like you know going from city to city with this group of people that you can't speak about well I, I gotta think first of all I went from playing dirt floors for a buck a night to playing 15, 20,000 seat arenas Okay, so there was no you know, gradual climbing up the ladder there. And I got thrust into this environment, you know, just a little country kid all wide-eyed and everything. I didn't know what to make of it, you know. My first couple of years was just, you know, a series of wow after wow after, oh, I don't believe it. Because, I mean, it, it wasn't just the band, but it was just the travel, you know. I hadn't flown before I got in that band. So... You know, a lot of that was opening my eyes to just what the world outside of my hometown was like. Okay. And, boy, I saw things. I, I saw crazy stuff. I saw unbelievable stuff. I saw stuff that I had to keep, you know, in the back of my head as to what to do and what not to do. You know, how to succeed, how to fail. But it was just one big party. And then as soon as we hit the stage, we got serious. And, you know, everybody thinks, well, we partying on stage. No, it was, we were there to really play. You know, we had a mission when we hit the stage. And you come off the stage, and then the party continues. And it just went from town to town, year to year. And it was crazy. <laughs> Almost sound like a controlled chaos or on yeah. stage or something. That was the, the term that George used. He he called it organized chaos. <laughs> and it, it sounds silly until you see it in action. And then you're like, oh, that's what he means. Yeah. So uh, fast forwarding, I know we're going to skip a lot, but uh, getting with uh, Mr. Prince. Yeah. And I understand... And it's funny because I remember when you guys came to Seattle 
the year is going to escape me, but it was the One Night Alone show. You guys play at the 2002. Paramount. 2002. You play yeah. at the Paramount Theater. Yeah. Uh, I was at the, the sound check because he had the MPG Music Club at that right. time. So I was sitting front row, and I remember just standing there and seeing Prince's instruments, and I was, like, tripping. I was like, wow, this brother is really here. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's doing it. And then he came out, and then I remember it's always so iconic to me because... Uh, Maceo at the time was a part of uh, the EMP uh, music uh, museum that they have here in Seattle. I don't know if you remember this, and there was yeah, a the there was a funk there was a funk thing. Yeah, we were um, yeah we were part of that exhibit. Yeah, yeah. And I remember that uh, Prince was asking the fans about that because he was like, they want me to come play an after show at this thing. He he was very like he wanted to know where the money was going. He's like, who yeah. owned this place before I go in there? And yeah. somebody said, you should ask Maceo. He he in the film there. He could tell. You. <laughs> and I remember Maceo kind of looking like, ah. <laughs> but uh, it was such a that was an amazing tour, and it was yeah. a different sort of uh, thing for Prince at that time. The backstory is that's when I met. I mean, I didn't meet my. Wife. I met her in '83. Okay, but that tour. She got some tickets, you know, she wanted to come see Prince and she went there expecting to see all of the stuff that he was famous for. Right. And he was just totally off the grid music wise, mm-hmm. doing none of the stuff he used to. And she's like, I don't like this, I'm leaving. Oh, wow. <laughs> but earlier that evening I ran into her at the corner. I just like, Hey, you know, what are you doing here? And we were like, You married? No, I'm married. No. And we were wondering why we never went out. So, you know, that tour and that night that he played in D.C. was the beginning of what is now 15 years of being together. Wow. Yeah. But anyway, back to that tour, I have to ask you a question. Sure. From a fan standpoint, what was it like, you know, being that close, seeing, I guess you could see, like, the guts of the concert. You know, it wasn't just, this is what the final production looks like. But you're looking at this like, okay, this is how it's all done. You know, this is what they do to prepare for us. So f- from that, what did you think of that? Uh, the, that was the ultimate Prince concert I've ever been to, and I've been to many. Okay. Uh, so one being, I, I say, a semi-musician myself and had been on tour before. What do you to, play? I don't play, per se. I can play keyboards. I okay. play keyboards and stuff like that. But to see... Prince not being sort of the superstar per se yeah. and just seeing him play and just being like again I'm on the outside saying regular but not being the what I see on TV all the time you get to see him doing grunt work yeah it was words. amazing yeah. it was the best thing I've ever seen I was like I wish it spoiled me because anytime I saw him after that yeah. I always kind of wanted to see the real stuff but I thought it was amazing all of us there were blown away you know you guys did uh, I wish you could see every act like that you know? uh, yes yeah. I think a lot of fans <laughs> would want to see every that's act that's what I was wondering you know if that kind of made it so you wanted to see everybody intimately intimately like that you know with their pants down you know unshaven you know <laughs> up there you know just getting ready for stuff yeah. and th- that inside I would think what gives you a really good insight as to what it takes, you know, to make that show what it is. Yeah, just to be briefly to go back to what you said, to, for us, it, it showed the work 
uh, it showed like I was like I can see why he is who he is mm-hmm. because he puts in so much work. There wasn't that many of us there, but he was still delivering it as if it was a lot of people. Yeah. And at one point, you guys did Billy Jean, yeah. and I was like, this dude is the real. I mean, I already knew he's the real deal, but it was just kind of like. Man, they real like this is this is very inspiring. Yeah, I, I think that's the word I can say. I was inspired by looking at that, and I was like, I'm gonna go work on whatever I'm doing as hard as they do. Because people do. think they had this perception that you just you know put on your glitter suit, walk up on stage and your guitar, and just crank. But so much goes on before that mm. to make that happen. And you know when you're watching, you know everybody just off the cuff doing something like playing Billie Jean for example just lets you know there are outside influences to all of this you know certain things we do coming up playing other people's music and learning all these songs and storing all of these licks and chords and stuff that make it possible for us to do what we do when you buy that ticket and the curtain rolls up and say ladies and gentlemen so and so right you know wow okay what was the uh, process like in terms of the rehearsals for that tour and, and, and so on? Because I know for us, one thing we saw was a, uh, the pedigree of the musicianship that you guys brought to the table. Yeah. It was amazing. And I was like, wow, now you're seeing Prince in a whole different light. But I'm curious, like, what was it initially sort of getting ready for those shows for you guys? Well, Prince is a rare example of, you know, uh, I don't want to use the name Star or whatever, but the guy on the marquee, also being a music director, a lot of times people will hire somebody else to do the MD, and then you know the the, the headline, the headliner walks in and says, "Oh, that's nice, let's play," you know. But he was hands on in the whole process. He rehearsed tirelessly. You know, he was a perfectionist. You know, and not only to get the show right. But having it so, if he decided at the last minute he wanted to do something else, he'd call an audible. Everybody knew what that was. So that's that's what the, that's what those rehearsals were like. You know, he quarterbacked the entire thing, and for that stuff that he couldn't do, like Prince doesn't have you know a lot of horn knowledge, if any at all. Okay. Um, so he would designate that. He would say, "Look, whoever's running it," and it ended up being me. Uh, most of the time okay. I need this I need that Make it happen mm. And that's what you did You made it happen Okay You know I mean You just Didn't want To let him down You know Because if somebody like that Trusts you With the keys of the car You don't want to wreck it right, right So you know I made it a point To do whatever I had to do To, to make all of that go Even as much as Right now All of the parts because at the time, Candy had her own thing. Maceo had his own thing. Eric was in and out. Najee was in and out. Right, and, right. Mike Phillips. And, you know, yeah. so a long line of horn players. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to have to sit there and teach these people sonically, note by note, what it was. So I just wrote out everything. And when somebody would leave, somebody would come in. i say, here's the paper. Read it. That's what Prince wants. Very interesting. Um, Was there like, uh, and again, so you have Maceo, and and to be clear, you're here with Maceo today. You guys are playing here in Seattle. Yeah. Maceo, iconic, you know. Yeah. That name, 
speaks for itself. Was it? I'm just curious, just to be funny as a fan, like during the rehearsals, was there ever a time when Prince would be like, Mesa, man, you didn't get that right? Or, I mean, was it even, could he, could Mesa ever not get it right? You know <laughs> Prince, it, Prince, it's funny because, you know, he's the rule of all he surveys. Okay. But there, there's some people that he just looks up to. And you can see that little kid in him. And I think Mace was an example of that. Definitely Larry Graham. Um, But, you know, he just looks at these people like, uh, I don't know how to say this, but I need such and such. (laughs) But, But a lot of the times when you ask somebody like that to be in the band it's because of who they were before you hired them it's not much of a a correction thing except for okay instead of playing 16 bars play 32 okay that's all he ever needed to say to Maceo I mean he's Maceo freaking Parker man he can handle the rest (laughs) (laughs) for sure for sure okay um some of the other uh, people that I, I saw that you played with is, uh, of course, we mentioned Bootsy. Yeah. And I love Bootsy Collins, man. Uh, George Duke. Uh, Stanley Clark. Yeah. Um, and then Sheila E., I, I see that as yeah. well. I wanted to ask you this because of where we're at with music today, and this is not, again, disparaging anybody that's out today. I don't want to yeah. do that. But I wanted to ask you about, in terms of the level of musicianship and just, um, you know, being up on your craft. Uh, and I didn't really get to ask you, like, how you got to play the trombone and, like, how did you even get the opportunity to get an instrument, which sometimes is hard for people to do today. But, like, how do young people get to be on the level of you guys today? Like, is there, do you see that? Practicing is encouraged. Well, I think it's three things. Okay. It's access, you know, being able to get your hands on instruments, mm-hmm. on music, on video, uh, desire, you know, that burn within you that says, I have to be, I can be better than this. And um, an opportunity. You know, once you get those things going, it's just a matter of... I mean, there's a lot of people out there that can play. They just haven't been in the right place where I need what you do and you happen to be right here. Because that's it more than anything is, you know, being in the right place at the right time. Because there's a ton of people out here that can play. So I think those are the three factors that really determine your success or how far you go in all of this. Okay. Um, and any desire, I know there's a desire, but uh, are we going to be seeing any time soon sort of a solo project uh, from yeah. you? And, you know, that desire that I was speaking of a minute ago <laughs> is probably the one thing that's kept me from that solo project. You know, I, every once in a while I had these spurts, I want to do something, I want to do something, I want to do something. But, then I start falling into the trap of okay, this is coming up, that's coming up. I, whatever reason, have not been able to set aside time for me and just me. Okay. Without somebody else ringing the phone saying do this, do that. So you know maybe I've been lazy in that respect. But yeah, I've been I've work I'm working on stuff and I have a whole lot of material cut. It's just a matter of tweaking it okay. and getting it down on something. And I've started. 
doing this, I guess, for like 11 years, (laughs) just piece by piece. My thing is, and and, and I, I stick by this, I'm not in a rush to put it out so much that when I release it, I, I, I want to be able to look back on it and say, that's as good as, you know, I can make it. I don't want to listen to it and say, oh, man, I wish I had taken more time to do this and do that. You know, if you want it good, you can't rush it. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Um, so uh, back to Prince. Uh, what do you, again, you've worked with, you know, the the lineage of who you've worked with you can see you can see you know the obviously James Brown connection going down to Bootsy Parliament Maceo then you can see that onto Prince and sort of him carrying it forward and whatnot. Uh, what were some of the things that you've learned working with you pretty much have had your hand in some way in working with all of these people well the most important thing is you know those opportunities that come up you, it's not so much you, you win on the gig, but it's the preparation that has it for you because you don't want to get ready for an opportunity. You want to be ready. So, and along with that, that reputation that comes with that, that's something that carries over. You know, like Otis Redding had this thing, and Maceo told me this story. If you played in James Brown's band and you got tired of that you always have a place here because he knew that James Brown pretty much was the US Marine Corps of funk back then you know you were very disciplined you weren't late your shoes were always shine you took your craft serious so you know by those associations people will assume that you must be of that that caliber because I've had the opposite you know I've heard people say oh if you play with you know with P-Funk then you know you have no discipline at all. You know that was the the, the misnomer and the perception about that band. And I didn't think to call you. I said you really should call first. You know before you make that determination. Right. <laughs> I know a lot of people have that with with Prince. They say, "Oh, you work with Prince? Yeah. Okay, well then you must be." Uh, he didn't have nobody over here that wasn't on point. Exactly. Yeah. It, a lot of that carries over. It, it, it's a, a ripple effect throughout the industry. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those things where, uh, and they'll call me and say, say, I heard you played with, so you must be. Can you do such and such? And, you know, the older you get and the more of those little, you know, notches on your belt or feathers in your cap you get, the more work you uh, end up getting, which is how I end up playing with somebody like George Duke or uh, Stanley Clark or or uh, Kirk Whalum or Jonathan Butler, Layla Hathaway. list goes on, man. But, uh, I wanted to ask you this question. Do you, um, when you guys are out doing your, your shows... Do you do you uh, get how do I say how is the perception from your standpoint in terms of are black people out supporting you guys coming out to shows? I know it's maybe different state to state, yeah. but just in a general consensus, uh, are we like uh, appreciating you guys as we should be? Yeah, your well, well, you got to understand too. I think who comes to the show depends on whose name is on the marquee, like. A lot of people that know about Maceo 
are going to be a little bit older if they know him from James Brown. And then there's some that know him from P-Funk, which is where we met. Then there's some that know him from association with Prince. Right. But he's arguably the most famous sideman in history. Mm. You know, so... But, you know, I guess, you know, without him having anything current on the radio is like, okay, who's listening to him now? You know, where do you advertise... You know, that depends on a lot on who, or, you know, those people that are diehard Maceo fans to this day right. and just discovered, wow, man, I can find out all kinds of stuff on this internet. Where's Maceo? <laughs> okay. Okay. But, for example, you know, I was with P-Funk for a while, you know, and it was almost a predominantly, well, it was a predominantly black audience. Mm-hmm. Then it kind of made a shift when Jerry Garcia died. Okay. So then we started seeing a lot of deadheads oh, wow. at the P Funk shows, and so you can't really call or predict the shift in the audience. Okay. It, it's just a matter of you know time, place, and history, and all that. I, I would say this: uh, if you were to ask some, certain people, like, "Oh, you're gonna go to see Rolling Stones or this and that," yeah, young old. They going. Yeah. You know. And it's the same thing with Prince. You know, they say Prince is coming to town. Everybody's coming. Right. Yeah, it's just like, I just want to make, I just wish, and that's why I want to you know, do this podcast too, is that we are, so the young guys who might be into hip-hop, which I'm into and everything else, mm-hmm. but we got to understand, oh, see, Maceo, there wouldn't be no hip-hop or none of this. You hearing him on all them records, or you, you know, the foundation of a lot of oh, things yeah. that we have. So, we supposed to go to that concert too because that's our hero. Like he done yeah. laid the foundation. So whether or not he got you know the the record popping now and oh no he in town. And I'm saying this to say you know, this would be the same with it was you know uh, Charlie Wilson or yeah. or any of his other well, ones. That's the thing, man. You know if you're going, if you listen to music and you go to a concert just to hear whatever's hot at the time. You might not think like that, but if you listen to it and you sit there and scratch your head and wonder, okay, something before this happened, where does this all come from? That gets you to see uh, an Earth, Wind, and Fire. That gets you to see a Maceo. You know, that might get you to come out to see you know any one of our Gap band. You know, list goes on. So, it, it, it depends on you know. What you're listening for Because I mean And not to be You know Play anybody cheap man But kids are just getting The short The short end of the Musical stick these days And it's not their fault You know You take music out of the schools You take music off of TV You know When you just have the same Ten records playing every day There's no broadening of the scope you know, I, 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 one of one of my favorite stories to tell is, you know, the guy's doing a session. He's a drummer. And he's loading out. And, you know, they're coming out of the recording studio and waiting in the lobby so they can get in. You know, it's a couple of hip hop artists, right? He's looking at this guy carrying all this stuff, and he's like, "What's that?" And and the other guy looked at him and says, "Oh man, that's just something they used to make beats with back in the day." <laughs> wow. And I'm thinking the story is like you know just something that the people just said, right? Years later, I'm on a gig. I meet the guy that was the drummer that brought that stuff out. <laughs> 
don't know what to say on that, man. That's wild. So, but the good thing is, is a lot of what was is available to you on YouTube. You know, so if you have an inkling to do any research at all, you will see these things. You will see James Brown playing. You know, funky drummer saying, "Oh man, that's Eric B and Rakim." Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, you'll see P Funk doing, you know, something. Uh, they're landing the mothership. You say, "Oh man, that's Ice Cube." Right, or Dre, or something. <laughs> and Dre, and all of that. Yeah, you get to see all of those things happen if you look hard enough. Right. My nephew um, made it a point to correct all of his friends. He's, you know, in his early forties now, but he's a little kid. Okay. And they were talking about all these new records, and he knew from us playing them. Wow. And he's like, "Oh man, that ain't nothing but some man's drill." <laughs> <laughs> and they would look at him like, "Man, you don't know what you're talking about." He go get the record, put it, put it on, spin it, and they're like, "Wow!" And they look at him like, you know, he's some guy that lives in the cave and sits there with his legs crossed all the time, right? <laughs> That's funny. You know, it's so funny. My uncle did that to me when I remember I was watching a Prince video. This is back in the 80s. And he was like, oh, man, ain't nothing but he doing some James Brown. And at the time, I didn't really understand James like that. And I was like, oh, no, he ain't. But then when I went back and did my research, I was like, hey, okay. I see what yeah. you're saying. I see where it's coming from. You know, oh, you can see in Prince, you can see James Brown. You can see Hendrix. You can see Little Richard. You can see some Larry Graham. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can even see some Elvis. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, t- tell me, Delirious ain't a, ain't a Elvis thing, man? Yeah. That's straight out of um, yeah. <laughs> That's a rockabilly um theme if there ever was one. Yeah, man. man. Um, I don't want to keep you too long. I know you, 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 you y'all are here to do a show tonight. Yeah, you man. Know, y'all gonna turn it out? Yeah, over here to Jazz Alley for the weekend. Yes, sir. You know, our home away from home. We usually here, you know, every August and. So, yeah, from Thursday to Sunday, we'll be there. Jazz Alley is a nice place, man. I've seen it a is. few shows there. It's a really intimate uh, type of us. And, and that's why I'm not used to that, man. You know, I'm playing my horn, and I have to watch where I move my slide because <laughs> I don't want to, you know, drip anything in somebody's dinner. Right. They're right. that close. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I remember um, this was a few years ago, but the uh, Crusaders played there. Wow, uh, and Joe Sample was still alive, yeah. and I had been a big fan of them. But I was, you know, I was a kid. I wasn't even born when they were really popping. Yeah. But I saw they were playing that night. I was like, I gotta go. Yeah. And they put me right in front of the stage, and Mr. Samp- Sample was standing right there playing. It was just like school, man. I was like, well, and I heard. I was hearing all the records that I've been listening to all these years. Exactly. Plus, you know, you having any, you know, keyboard acumen, or yeah. you probably just. <laughs> yeah, it was it was amazing, man. Yeah. So that's a yeah, Jazz Alley is a, a great place. It is. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you was uh, to go back to Prince again. Yeah. Um, did you guys were you guys actually doing any recording of songs with him in the studio? Yeah, and stuff. Yeah, we did. Um, it, it's funny because I got into band in two thousand two, mm-hmm. so it wasn't as horn heavy as a lot of the stuff that came before. But um, but we played on Musicology, we played on um, Planet Earth, um, played on 2010. Um, 2010's called. I need to memorize that because people are going to ask me this question, but <laughs> it's a pretty good chance that anything that had horns on it from Musicology up to about 2009 
I was on it. Okay. Yeah. And you guys did the iconic 21 Nights in London run. Oh, man. Uh, and they're actually, I don't know, you know, they're doing a, an exhibit over there now. They're going to be starting an exhibit in London. Uh, with Prince, they're going to take some stuff over there. They just sort of announced this. Yeah, I, I heard about that. I've been contacted about okay. that. And um, I was like, I don't know what to give you that you don't have already, <laughs> man. But <laughs> anything I could think of, you know, a backstage pass or you know, whatever. I'm sure you have all the pictures we took because, you know, those pictures were channeled through a very specific source. So I think okay. if they talk to them, then they have everything that I have. Okay. Quick, quickly, and I'll let you go. But what was that like? That experience, Twenty One Nights, man. That, that was. I remember hearing about that. I'm like, they gonna do Twenty One Nights? Like, how was that? Gonna? And they and y'all did it. Yeah. Well, first of all, I thought what was really cool was I was actually living in London for two oh, months. Wow. Okay. We had apartments over there. We're like, we went a hotel and anything. We had to, you know, do our own laundry, cook our own food <laughs> okay, wow. and stuff. I was actually arrested, you know, I didn't drive, thank goodness. But, <laughs> but yeah, man, I, I felt like more than anything, I wasn't just visiting, that I was actually part of okay. the community in London. Now, those shows were remarkable in the sense of, you know, 21 nights and the place as big as on or what, but the after parties... You know, the club was right there in the building. You know, it wasn't unusual for us to spend 12 hours a day in that venue. Between soundcheck rehearsal, eating, the concert, and a possible after party. And oh, people came through left and right. Beverly Knight, she's big over there. Um, Amy Winehouse came, popped up. And, and uh, Maya came through. And it's just... It was just a place to be. It's like when huh. Prince throws a party out in L.A., you know, all of the, the elite come out. Right, right, right. And it was pretty much the same thing in London. Wow. You know, I met, it's funny, I don't want to, you know, sound like a, a, a fanboy, but I met friggin' Elton John, man. Oh, shit. I was like, I said, hey, man, you the dude. You like Saturday, Saturday night's all right for fighting in Yellow Brick Road and all that cool stuff? Wow. I said, yeah. So... I enjoyed it, but uh, it was a long way, a long time for being away from home. But. <laughs> wow! Now, did you uh, were you with your wife at that point, or did you? yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, she did. She did fly over and, and, and spend like a week. You know, that worked out for me. But um, and plus, she used to live in London back in the eighties. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, you know, she was taking me around and teach me how to say Tottenham. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> if it wasn't for her, I'd call it Tottenham. <laughs> is, is there anything that uh, you think us as fans, uh, anything you can say about Prince that we may not know about what kind of guy he was? Well, it, it, it probably has leaked out already, but he probably was... You know, an enigma so much, mm. and rare were those instances where he could just be a regular dude. Because okay. he was always, you know, a, a, a pop star. You know, he was an icon. Mm. But those times where he was just, you know, just kicking the bobo with the band, wicked sense of humor, and, and hear him laughing is is, is contagious. <laughs> And, you know, he's just 
a supreme win, you know, and that's I think one of the things that I mean, and it's probably going to be that with just about anybody, but we got to see him being just a regular dude. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Well, sir, again, so much appreciate you sitting down with us today and, and sharing your experiences and some man. stories, man. And, you know, you can't see this, but there's a handshake being oh, of done, right? Oh, man, that's, 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 uh, that's for taking. Uh, we, we'll take a picture, but where can people find you online if they want to, you know, get in connect with you oh, or you got a website well, or something? Well, i got a couple pages on Facebook, Greg Boyer. That's, you know, for all of the opinion stuff. And then Greg Boyer, trombone. That's stuff that's most that's music-specific. Uh, got a website, gregboyer.net. That's G-R-E-G-B-O-Y-E-R.net. And other than that, just Google a brother, man. You never know where I might turn up. Okay. <laughs> All right, say that. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to the Prince Podcast. We're here with Mr. Greg Boyer. My name is Michael Dean. As I always say, work it like a job. We'll see you next time. Peace. <laughs>